Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 9. 1 Corinthians 9. Their uh, little girl was in her cute little leotard twirling around the gymnastics floor and her parents looked on and they were so proud of her. Her her coach, her gymnastics, gymnastics coach told them that she had a natural ability and her parents envisioned her going all the way to the Olympics. This little girl loved to tumble and twirl and bend into all shapes She loved to sit in front of the TV and watch the Olympics, especially women's gymnastics. You know those kind of girls, right? Some imagine that, and some actually can do some of the gymnastics moves, and this little girl was one of those, and her parents then began to invest in her. They spent around $10,000 to $15,000 a year on lessons and traveling and competitions and equipment. And as she got older, the costs increased, and so did the time. In her teen years, she was easily spending 30 hours a week on training, following a a regimented diet. Eventually, her family even moved to a location that she could be closer to a better training facility with a coach who had Olympic experience. And the parents even took out a line of credit to fund her tournaments and her training, her travels, her medical bills. By the age of 15, each morning their daughter was up at 4 o'clock in the morning and she was training full-time sit-ups and push-ups and flips and stretches. And every hour of her day became dedicated to this goal of reaching the Olympics. She endured injuries. She missed out on school and other activities, her full focus, her full focus was competing. By the age of 17, she was in the best shape she could be. At this point now, her parents were spending about $120,000 a year for her to make it to the Olympics. She went to the Olympic trials, she made it to the Olympics, and she won gold in her main event. She made it to the apex of her career, the pinnacle moment where she stood on that platform, had a medal, gold medal put around her neck. The the crowds cheered. The TV cameras were on her. She smiled. She got to sing the national anthem and see the flag. She got that gold medal medal put, put around her neck, worth about $800, according to some estimates. And for that moment of glory. She did all that. Her parents sacrificed all of that. She endured all that for that time where she could have that glory of winning gold in the Olympics. I read a number of articles about gymnasts and different Olympians, and, and that story doesn't necessarily represent one, but it, it really summarizes a lot of the stories that I read about people. And those, those facts, those figures about that gymnast are accurate to what many of those gymnasts face. Some of them get gold. Some of them never make it to the Olympics. Some come up just short of winning. But for those who won, how did they win that competition? Well, it took years of sacrifice and of discipline and dedication. Their mind, their hopes were set on that day when they could win that gold medal. And so each day, all their effort, their diet, their discipline, their resolve, their training was devoted to that goal. And in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul uses an illustration of the Olympics or athletic events to describe the Christian life. It was with that same dedication and focus of that athlete at an Olympic event that Christians are to live the Christian life. And for those in Corinth, they were very familiar with the ancient Olympic Games. Every four years in Athens, the Olympic Games took place. And Athens was only about 50 miles away from Corinth. And really, those two weeks for the ancient games, those two weeks were really a religious ceremony. 
the, the Olympics were dedicated to their god, their false god, their idol, Zeus. And so the athletes competed in, in foot races and chariot races. You know, think of chariots of fire. Okay, most of the old people know what that is. Some of you in here are like, what is that? Okay, it's an old movie. Boxing and wrestling. And they competed really for the favor of Zeus. And so their lives, those athletes' lives were dedicated to that competition. And really, those athletes trained for years just to be able to compete in hopes that they could honor their God Zeus and gain favor from him and receive an award. Even in the city of Corinth, it had its own version of the Olympics. It was called the Isthmian Games. That took place every two years in the city of Corinth. And this one was, again, a religious ceremony two weeks dedicated to the god Poseidon. And like the Olympics, there was a large, um, there's a lot of sacrifices. There were athletes dedicated to honoring this idol, this false god. In fact, we can be fairly certain that Paul, the apostle, was in Corinth in 51 AD during the Isthmian Games. We know that from Acts 18 and some of the historical data there that Paul potentially was there in that city when these events were happening. So when Paul was writing here to the Corinthian church, Paul was speaking about something that they were very familiar with. These people knew about athletes and the rigors they went through to win. And so Paul took that very familiar activity of athletic competition and used it as an analogy for living the Christian life. Our text is 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. And in this, in this text, Paul describes the Christian life as running a race. You are, uh, as a Christian, on the course of life, competing, not against other Christians or other people, but really your biggest competitor is your own self, your own flesh, and you are to lay aside other distractions, other weights that slow you down. You are to be in spiritual shape, be self-disciplined, have self-control, and keep your mind on that which is eternal. Would you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I'm going to read this whole text, verse 19 through 27. But I want you to focus really on verse 24. Notice verse 24. This is really the, the key verse that controls the rest of this text. Verse 24 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run. So run that you may obtain. And that word run there is a verb. It's a present tense imperative. Present tense means it keeps going on and on and on. And an imperative means it's a command. This is a divine call for each one of us as believers. We are to run the race of the Christian life. So here the Holy Spirit is calling us to run the Christian life, to keep going, put one foot in front of the other, endure the pain, don't give up, Keep running the race. Keep trusting the Lord. This word run here, this Greek word run, is found also in John 20 and verse 4 to describe the disciples' great foot race to the empty tomb. I think I have it in here. Maybe not. John 24 says this. Peter and John heard that Jesus is risen. Remember the ladies went to the tomb. It was empty. They came and they told the disciples, hey, he's not there. An angel told us he's risen. And so Peter and John say, we got to go find out what's going on. And they run. John 24 says this. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple, that's John, outran Peter because he was older and reached the tomb first. And, and think about it. They had a mission they were on. They were going to get to that tomb, and Jesus had died, and now they say he's risen, and so they're on mission. They're, they're focused on the goal. There's no distractions, and so they're not going to be running and see something and be like, oh, I think I'll talk to this person or, or go this place. No, they wanted to get to that tomb and see if Christ truly had risen from the dead. 
And it's with that same effort, it's with that same focus that God wants us to live the Christian life. And so notice with me in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27, how we are to run the Christian life. Would you stand with me as I read this text? Stand with me as I read God's word. 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Father, I pray that you will use this word to speak to us, to sanctify us, for maybe some, someone in here without Christ to save them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Really, I think the question that I want to answer today is how are you to run the Christian life? How are you to run the race of the Christian life? And I think 1 Corinthians 9, 20, or 19 through 27 calls us to run the race of the Christian life through faith in the gospel. That's the start by serving others. That's the, the striving, the daily striving to gain that which lasts forever. That's seeking the, the kingdom of God. And then last, with resolve, focus, and self-discipline. So we have four points here today. Answering the question, how are you to run the Christian life, the race of the Christian life? And so first of all, you have to start the race. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul over and over and over uses the word gospel. In fact, he uses the word gospel eight times. Look down in verse 18. It's just, just one example, two of the times he uses it. Verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, his declaring what? I may present the gospel free of charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the what? gospel. Paul's desire was to go to cities like Corinth and preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 17, Paul says, I actually came to Corinth for this reason. I didn't come to baptize people. I didn't come to do religious things. I came to tell you the gospel. And what's the gospel? It's the good news. It's the good news. The noun in, in 1 Corinthians 9, gospel is euangelion. That's the Greek word, euangelion. It literally means a message that, uh, that a person, a message told by a person who is heralding good news. It's a message told by a person who's heralding good news. And it's actually the picture of a person running into a town with good news that the enemy has been defeated. Greek legend says that in 490 B.C., after Greece defeated the Persian army, the Persian army was this massive army that was just leveling every, 
country it went to, but they came to Greece. Greece stopped them, and they defeated the Persian army. They went back in humiliation, and so the Greek, the Greeks sent a messenger that ran from Marathon, Greece, 25 miles to Athens, Greece, to announce the good news that the Persians were defeated. And the herald ran into this city in Athens, and he declared the good news. The Persians are defeated. We are free people. And then the legend says that this man dropped dead right there. And so to commemorate that event, we have something called the marathon. So when you hear or you see people or maybe you're going to be in a marathon, you can think about good news, running that 25 miles and ending it to tell the good news. Hopefully you don't drop dead. But Paul said, I'm like a runner like that. I'm like that runner and I'm giving my all and I'm going into towns like Corinth and I'm preaching this good news. And what is the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, the good news for those in Greece was that the Persian Empire was defeated. What's the good news for us? It's that death is defeated, right? Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. Jesus Christ came and he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and he defeated death. And he proved that through resurrection by rising again. Death is the great enemy of every person. Every one of us in this room, unless Christ comes back today, every one of us in this room will die. And I would venture to guess that most people in the world fear that last breath. And they fear what's going to happen next. But Jesus came to defeat death so you could have life, so you don't have to fear he came to defeat Satan and sin. I was watching um, the video this past week of Queen Elizabeth's casket. And, and you saw that there with all the pomp and the circumstance. And her casket was shrouded with the, the royal standard. It was adorned with the imperial state crown. All those jewels on there and the orb and the, the scepter. And everyone's dressed up. Everyone's quiet walking by. And there. There's the body of the Queen of England, 70 years. I think she was, what, 96 years old. I mean, think about that. I mean, one of the most important people, some would say, in the world. But as I was looking at that, I was thinking to myself, she's not there. Like, that's her body. That's her shell. But she's somewhere else. And she's either in one of two places. She's either in the presence of the Lord or she's away from the Lord. She's like every one of us, right? Right now, she is what someday you will be, and that is in eternity. And there's no queens and kings in eternity. There's those who are with the Lord and those who are separated from God forever. In fact, the Bible says because of our sin, all of us are condemned. All of us deserve to be separated from God in hell. That's death. But the good news is this, Jesus came, he took our hell upon himself, he died, and he's the eternal God, so he's able to take our eternal punishment, and he gave up his life, was put in the tomb, and rose again, and he's in heaven now, and he defeated death. Friends, you don't have to fear death, because Jesus conquered it. You don't have to fear sin, you don't have to be dominated by sin, because Jesus defeated sin. Jesus, he has given us the good news, and that is that we can be saved. And so, friend, if you're in here and you're without Christ, honestly, you might feel like you have no purpose in life, right? You feel lost. You're like wandering around and thinking, what's the purpose for my life? I'm not satisfied. There's like, there's like I, I feel like I'm just a person who has no purpose. Honestly, you're like, you're like those people who, are wandering around a race and maybe you realize today that you need to get in the race. See, God, God made us to run the race following Christ. And so Christ wants us to believe the gospel, to turn from our sin, to get in the race, to believe in him. And so really the start of the Christian life is 
through faith in Christ. And then, second, how are you to run the Christian life? By striving to serve others. Look at verse number 19. For though I am free from all, Paul says, I have made myself a servant to all. I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Notice the beginning, Paul says, I am free from all. What's he talking about? I'm free from all. Well, he's speaking of his Christian liberty. In fact, go back to verse one of chapter nine. Notice he says, am I not free? So again, he's talking about his freedoms in Christ. Look at verse four. Do we not have the right or the the Christian rights, the Christian freedoms? Verse 5, do we not have the rights, the the Christian freedoms? Look at verse 12. He says, if others share this rightful claim, if others have freedoms in Christ. And so Paul's saying, I have freedom in Christ. Paul had freedom. He had the right in Christ to do, to, to apply the scriptures in the way that he believed God wanted him to. And that included what Paul did with his time, that included what Paul did with his money, that included how he cut his hair, that included where he went, what he ate, what he didn't eat, his marital status, all those issues that there's not religious rules that Paul had to follow in order for God to like him, right? He's like, I'm free to apply the scriptures how God wants me to or how I think God wants me to in those areas. I'm going to apply it maybe differently than you. And if you look back to 1 Corinthians 8.1, we, we notice this. Look at 1 Corinthians 8.1. He says, we have knowledge in this, right? We have knowledge that we have the freedom to apply the scriptures differently. But he says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, he says, but there's something that goes beyond just knowledge of our Christian freedoms. It's what? It's love. And so as we make decisions, we're not just making decisions on what can I do, but the question is, is what is best to love other people? So if you notice in verse 15, look at 1 Corinthians 9, 15. He says, but I have made no use of any of these rights. In other words, he says, I'm willing to give up my Christian freedoms. I'm willing to give up my rights in Christ for the sake of other people so I can give them the gospel. And so in verse 19, that's what he's saying. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? that I might win more of them. And Paul has a paradox here. On on the one hand, we are free in Christ. On the other hand, we are slaves to serve other people so they can have the gospel. You know, I just think about our Christian freedoms. We've talked about this in the past couple weeks. We have the freedom. We have freedoms in Christ. We have the freedom to... You have the freedom to cut your hair any way you want. I have the freedom to shave it all off. You have the freedom to, if you're a guy, wear a beard or not wear a beard, right? You have the freedom to wear what you want. You have the freedom to get a vaccine or not get a vaccine. There's nowhere in the scriptures where it tells you you should or should not. You have the freedom to have 20 kids. You have the freedom to have two kids. You have the freedom to go to that rally, to enjoy that, fruit, that food. And so we could list freedoms that we have in Christ. So you have those freedoms. There aren't religious rules. You have to follow this, this, and this, and this in those areas. But the question is not in those areas, what, what can I do? The question is, how can I love people? How can I give the gospel to those people? How can I shepherd people? Sometimes how can I give up my rights for the good of other people? I know of a missionary who needed to go back to the mission field. And let me just say this before I go into some of these examples. You know, giving examples for Christian freedoms is difficult because people think you're making a statement. But again, Christian freedoms means that for one person it could be wrong and for another person it could be right, right? It's not in the Bible. It doesn't say, like, this is exactly what you should do. And so, so don't take these as me taking a position, right? But I know of a Christian missionary who wanted to go back to the mission field. He couldn't go back unless he got a, got a vaccine. And he personally was not in favor of getting vaccines, did not want to get a vaccine. But he had a choice to make. He could get the vaccine and go to the mission field, back to the mission field, 
or he couldn't. Did he have the freedom in Christ to not get a vaccine? Absolutely, okay? And I think that's something that is fundamental to our faith, and that is that you have the right in Christ to, to not put something in your body. Like, that's, your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit, so anything you put in your body, like, you have to do it by faith in Christ. That's what God wants you to do. So he had the right not to do that, but he chose to give up that right to go tell those people about Christ. I had a professor who said that he lives in Minneapolis, and he said that he um, has a guy that goes, well, he knows in, in Minneapolis, and this guy has um, tattoos all up his arms like this, and he has the gospel on it. And so he goes around to people, I think he wears a short sleeve shirt, and he goes around and gives the gospel to people. And it's pretty awesome. He's like, he's, he's been able to, to talk to so many people about Christ and lead people to Christ. It's great. This guy says that he travels. He personally, this uh, professor I had, travels all over the world. And he says he wouldn't get a tattoo himself because he says he's going to places, sometimes tribal places. And if they saw a tattoo, of course, they wouldn't know what it meant. And sometimes they might think actually it was demonic. And so that would cause an offense for those people. So for him, it's better for him not to do that for the sake of the gospel. You see how for one person, something could be, could be not best to do. And for another person, it could be best for them to do. That's the whole point of Christian freedoms. And, and so on one side, on the other side, you say, I'm willing to give it up for the sake of the gospel. So Paul served others by being willing to give up his freedoms. Verse 19, why? Why did he do that? That I might win more of them. And what did that look like? Well, verse 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew. Why? In order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. So Paul lists here four categories of different people and different groups. Each of them had their own religious rules, their own cultural norms, their social distinctions, their traditions. Look at verse 20, the Jews there, they had their cultural traditions. And you have these religious Jews, those under the law, those who follow the ceremonial laws. They had dietary laws and religious no-nos. And Paul said, when I went with them, I actually put myself under their ceremonial laws. Like when he went into the, the synagogue, he, he decided he was going to put himself under those religious rules, not to earn favor with God, like the Jews believed, but so he could give them the gospel. In verse 21, he says, those outside the law, those were Greeks and Romans, and they lived a completely different way than the Jewish people. It was like night and day different. But Paul adapted to their culture. He didn't compromise the gospel, but he adapted their culture so he could reach them for Christ. Remember in Athens, he gets up and there's all these false gods around, all these altars around. And he didn't get up with a sign that said, you worship Satan, like you're demonic, you're all going to hell. Did he do that? Like he didn't just needlessly get up and offend them. What he did was he said, hey, I noticed you have an altar over here to the unknown God. I actually know that God. Let me tell you about him. And he used that to give them the gospel and people were saved. So he didn't compromise the gospel, but he, he, he looked at their culture and saw what he could use and used it to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, even in 1 Corinthians 9, you see this right here, right? I mean, city of Corinth, like Athens nearby, the games. He's like, okay, listen, you know, Corinthians, you know, athletes, they put all this effort in for an earthly prize for the glory of their God. You need to put that same kind of effort into the Christian life for the glory of our God, the one true God. So Paul adapted to those different cultures. Verse 22 speaks of the weak. Those are those who have a weaker conscience in a particular area. So Paul was careful how he talked around certain people and maybe what he did around those because he didn't want to needlessly offend them. Why? Because he had something more important than his opinion. And what was it? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was the word of God. And I think it's important to explain here, Paul was not speaking about giving up his gospel convictions or his doctrinal convictions. If you don't know what I'm talking about, this is from a sermon I preached a number of weeks ago that 
divided up our convictions into convictions of first importance as gospel convictions. Those are truths that are essential to be saved. So Paul didn't bow to idols. Paul didn't pretend that he agreed with the Jews that they could work their way to heaven. He didn't compromise the gospel, nor did he compromise his doctrinal convictions. That's the second tier, the second level of doctrinal or second level of convictions. Those are Doctrinal convictions are truths that determine the spiritual health of a person and also of the church. He didn't, he didn't compromise his doctrinal convictions. Sometimes uh, as I talk to people about these different distinctions, the gospel dis- uh, convictions and the doctrinal convictions, then you have your person, personal Christian liberty convictions. Sometimes people get confused in that. And so that's why it's so important to kind of discern what we're talking about here. I've had people that will say things like, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the end times. It doesn't really matter what you believe about baptism, what mode you do, or it doesn't really matter what you believe about church membership, or it doesn't really matter how you interpret the scripture. Like those, those aren't, you know, we, we just really need to focus on the gospel. Well, you're right. It doesn't matter in regard to being saved, right? I mean, you can, you can have a different view on some of those things and still be a Christian, but it does matter for the health of the church. It doesn't matter for your own spiritual health. So, so Paul didn't compromise on, on gospel convictions. He didn't compromise on doctrinal convictions. But he said, when it comes to Christian liberty convictions, I'm willing to give some of those up. In fact, you can see that in verse 20. In verse 21, he makes those distinctions. Look at verse 20. He says in the middle of the verse, to those under the law, I became as one under the law, Though, notice this, though not being myself under the law. So he was willing to adapt his conduct to the ceremonial laws of Moses, but that didn't mean he capitulated to believe in works-based salvation. Verse 21, he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And he kind of put this parentheses there, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So the, so the Greeks and the Romans, they were rebels to the law of God. And Paul's saying, I'm not a rebel to the law of God. Yeah, I don't follow the ceremonial laws around them, but I'm, a, I'm under the law of Christ. I still follow and obey the Lord in regard to the moral commands that he has given to us. And so I think what happens is many times people go to this text and they misapply this text and say, well, I, I can sin as long as I'm telling people about Jesus. So, you know, I want to date this guy. He's not a believer, but, but I'm going to tell him about Jesus, mom and dad. So that makes it okay. No, it doesn't actually. We don't compromise the gospel to give someone the gospel. He, what he's doing here is he's saying, I, I have certain Christian liberties that I could do, but I'm willing to give those up for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does this look like for us? I think that's kind of what it comes back to. It's like, what does this look like for us? Well, that's the difficult problem with Christian liberty issues because <laughs> it is very personal. That's why it's called personal convictions. But let me just give you some ideas, maybe give you the, the central heart of this, the, the, the heartbeat of Christian liberty. And that is that this is a way of viewing life. It's, it's looking at other people. It's observing other people, how they live, and not compromising the gospel, but considering how can I give up something that I have a right to for the sake of loving that person, for the sake of giving that person the gospel. So sometimes it changes how we speak. Sometimes it changes our tone or maybe our topic of conversation. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of our time. Sometimes it's a sacrifice of finances. Sometimes it's, sometimes it's giving up some of your dignity like if you're gonna if you're gonna give the gospel to children, you're gonna speak differently than you do to a group like this, right? When when I speak to children, whether it be like the five year olds class or whether it be the the true trackers kids or whatever it is, you know I'm I'm talking a little different than I do to you. You know why that is? You know why why if I was gonna go to the five year olds class, why would I maybe start with a puppet? You know, do that because I want to communicate the gospel to them, right? And so I'm gonna come to their level. In fact, one of the things I did in South Carolina as I made all the guys that I mentored there, I told them they had to go teach the five-year-old's class. And some of that was just to see them be humbled, but some of that was because it's important for us to realize that it's all of us need to be humbled before the Lord 
in order to give the gospel to other people. And so sometimes if you want to reach certain people, you're going to have to change how you approach them. If you want to reach Hindi people with the gospel of Christ, you're going to have to be sensitive to their culture. If you have an unbelieving spouse, or or maybe you have a spouse that's a believer, but they're spiritually struggling, if you want to minister to that person, 1 Peter 3 says you're going to need to have a life that sacrificially serves them. So there might be some, th- be some things that you have a right to do or not do, but you give that up to serve that person so that you can minister to them and show them Christ. If you want to disciple your children to Christ, parents, sometimes there's things that we have to give up. Ephesians 6 tells us to be careful not to provoke our kids to anger, and sometimes we do that, don't we? So sometimes it takes humility on our part, our part as parents to go to our kids and apologize, ask forgiveness for what we did. Sometimes it means that we're struggling in our life in a particular area, and so we go ask for help. If you want to win your neighbor to Christ, you might not be so persnickety about the fence you're griping about all the time. If you want to help other believers at Lighthouse grow in Christ, you might need to give up some of your time for them. And so this is a way of living. It's, it's looking around us at people not compromising the gospel, but considering what we can give up for the sake of serving those people and leading them to Christ. And then third, we run the course of the Christian life to gain that which lasts forever. It's seeking the kingdom of God. Notice verse 19. I'm not going to read every word in these verses, but notice verse 19. He says in the middle of that verse, I have made myself a servant to all. Notice this, that I might win more of them. Verse 20, in order to win Jews, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you think Paul loved souls? Did Paul love people? It's like my life is given over to people to see them come to know Christ. And where did Paul get this heart from? Well, he got it from Jesus. I'm sure he read the Gospels, but also Jesus personally trained and taught Peter. I mean, Jesus night and day served people to the point of exhaustion, to the point that one time he got in a boat and he laid on the the wooden part of the boat, on the bottom of the boat, and there was a storm, there were winds, it was dangerous, and he fell asleep. And he didn't wake up. And it wasn't until the disciples woke him up because they thought they were going to die that he woke up. He was exhausted. Why? Because he kept ministering to people. Jesus served people in that way. Because Mark 6, 34 says this, he had compassion on them. He looked at people, he loved them, and he saw them like sheep that were lost without a shepherd. And so what did he do? What did he do? When he looked at people, he saw people, the scripture says, he began to teach them many things. He taught them the word of God. His heart of compassion led him to give them the gospel. Jesus loved people. And Paul here, what we see here is a heart that loves people. Romans 9, 2 and 3, Paul said this about the Jewish people, those brothers in Christ, not brothers, I'm not brothers in Christ, but brothers in uh, in, the, in his ethnic um, Jewish background. He loved them. He wanted them to know Christ. Look at Romans 9, 2. He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now think about that. I have great sorrow. I have anguish in my heart. I mean, what comes after this? Someone maybe died. Maybe there was a tragedy. But what was it for Paul? For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my 
brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, the Jewish people. Paul wanted to see these people come to Christ so much. Do you realize what he's saying there? He's saying, I would be willing to go to hell for them. Friends, that's love. I don't know if I really, frankly, have thought about people that way. Do I really love people like that? I mean, when is the last time you cried over a lost soul? When's the last time you thought of a person who needs Christ and your heart broke? You could say, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for them. I want them to know Christ. That's Paul here. Why is it that we lack this type of compassion for people? There's probably a number of reasons. I think probably the number one reason is that we lack love for God. And we lack love for people because we love ourselves. This past week, I, I got a new computer mouse, and I got a great deal on Amazon. And this mouse, silver and small, and it's really smooth. The other one I had was like jumping all over the place. My mouse would, you know, go everywhere, and it's rechargeable. Oh, I've never had one of those. That was pretty nice. And so now I don't have to get batteries, you know, just. And I was looking at this mouse, and I was thinking, wow, it's really nice and smooth. I was like, and I thought to myself, I really love this mouse. And I'm studying this, and I'm going, and then I went back to this, and I was like, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm, supposed, I'm supposed to love people. And I thought to myself, you know what? Sometimes I think I love things like this more than I love people. I care more about my little mouse than I do souls. And isn't that our struggle every day? Isn't that our struggle every day? I mean, if you're a child in here, isn't that the struggle you have in your home? Right, you're playing with your brothers and sisters and you get so mad because they do something to a piece of plastic in your house. That they move that piece of plastic into their room or to the other side of the, or they take that themselves. And and really ultimately what are you doing? You love that piece of plastic, that toy, more than you love that person. And parents, can't we do this? Maybe sometimes grandparents, can't we do this? Even with our own kids, it's like, we clean the house, it's perfect, and what did you do? You destroyed it. Who took my tool? What did you do to my tool? We can get so angry and so mad and sometimes so frustrated that instead of using that to shepherd them to Christ, anger wells up in our heart. We provoke anger, and sometimes we can even push souls to hell. I think that's how serious we need to take this. Sometimes we look at people in our community, or we look at them as people who are opponents. Oh, they vote for that person, I bet. They hold this position. We can go to the checkout, checkout and that lady there is, or that guy there is slow, and we're like, oh, what is his or her problem? I was studying at a coffee shop this past week and I had a lady come up to me and she said, uh, this is the table I normally sit at. Can you move? And you know, the first instinct is like, what is your problem? And you know what the answer to that is? People need Jesus. And, and it's what we do, we, what we can do is we can get frustrated and be like, oh, that person drives me crazy. What's their problem? They need Christ. And where are our eyes to look upon the multitudes and love them as, as those who are like lost sheep? And so we pray for them, Lord, please bring the gospel to them. Lord, maybe send me. Paul was invested in that which lasts for eternity. And what is it that lasts for eternity again? It's souls, right? Your bank account will diminish, and not only because of inflation. Like someday it'll be gone, but souls last forever. Your car will wear out, even if it's a Tesla, right? It will wear out. But souls last for eternity. Your soul, your child's soul, your neighbor's soul, your coworker's soul, friends, we need to invest in souls. 
One of the reasons that we at the church seek to reach children with the gospel of Jesus Christ is because I really think that the most fruitful ministry our church can have is to children. How many of you in here heard the gospel before age 15? Would you raise your hand if you heard the gospel before age 15? Okay, pretty much almost well, I shouldn't say everyone, but many people in the room. In fact, statistics show that 75 to 80% of Christians come to Christ before age 15. The world knows this. Do you realize the world knows this? That's why in communist and in socialistic countries, they control education. They brainwash children with their ideology. I mean, all the way down to kindergarten, right? That's why they make it in many of those countries illegal to evangelize and church. Our country is going down the same path, isn't it? And so the world knows this. Why don't we? And I I am very passionate about reaching boys and girls with the gospel of Jesus Christ because I really think that is our most fruitful ministry. That's our most fruitful mission field. And we should be giving the gospel everywhere. But in order to do that, we have to give up our rights our Christian freedoms to reach them for Christ. I was here on Thursday at Tree Trackers. I saw some of these adults in here doing actions like this. You don't usually do that as an adult. Then I went down to the teens, and uh, they're playing, I think it's called Gaga Ball. And so I got in there and played with them, and, and I you know, hit the ball. 45-year-old guy in there, you know, hit the ball scrape my finger, I'm like, ouch, now that hurts. And, and you're like, and you know, you, you go home and you're thinking, why am I doing this again? Like, when does this stop? And I thought to myself, oh, it doesn't stop. Because why are we doing this? We want to reach people for Christ. Because there's children all over the city who need Jesus. Because we have children in our church that we, I want to reach your kids for Christ. I want them to be discipled. We uh, received a message this past week. Dana did. There was a a girl in our church in South Carolina. She just got married to a Christian guy. She's reaching youth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And And they sent us, their family sent us a thank you note. We ministered to her in elementary and high school, junior high, high school. And they were saying thank you for investing in her life. You don't really get many, very many of those, by the way, as a pastor years later. And honestly, I, I thought about that, and, I, and it was kind of even around the time where we had this two trackers, and I thought, that's it right there. Like, that's it right there. Those are the people we want to reach for Christ. Verse 23, why do you do that? Why do we speak to our neighbors about the Lord? Why do we give the gospel I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Because we want to walk into glory, and we want to walk into glory with other people. If you're looking to go into glory by yourself, I don't know if you're a Christian. Because Christians want to share in the gospel blessings with other people. And so our eyes, our, our view, our motivation is upon eternal things. Seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. Colossians 3.1, seek the things that are above. 2 Corinthians 4.18, we don't look at the things which are seen, but we look at the things which are not seen, because the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, where we wait for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so our view is upward. In fact, look at verse 24. He says that in verse 24, do you not know that, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, run that you may obtain it. Look to the prize. In the Isthmian games, there was no second and third place. There was only first place. And here he's not saying you're competing against other people. He's saying with that same effort that a person runs to get first place, put that same effort into following Jesus. And what's the prize there? What's the prize? Well, I think it definitely does include souls. 
But in this context here, I think that also he's speaking of imperishable reward. Look at verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive an imperishable wreath, a, a perishable wreath. There you go, a perishable wreath. And you think about the Isthmian Olympic Games, they would get this wreath put on their head. How long would that last? Maybe a couple weeks. But we, what? An imperishable. I think Paul is referring back to his teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to the eternal rewards of Jesus. And the point is this, as we look to heaven, we look to glory, and we look to those things which last forever, that which is imperishable. I want you to think about this. If I were to say, everybody in this room that stays until 2 o'clock today in the church building, if you stay till 2 o'clock, you'll get a million dollars. If I had that much money. So if you stay till 2 o'clock, so what, that means you're probably going to miss your lunch. No lunch for you. Unless you're a young adult, then they're having lunch back there. But other than that, you don't get a lunch. You're going to have to be with a bunch of other people that maybe are annoying, like myself. For two hours, you're going to have to sacrifice your time, maybe your nap, maybe some other things, for a million dollars. Now, do you think you would stay around for two, do- two hours to get a million dollars? Think about that. That short period of time. It'd be worth it for a million dollars. Two hours is a short time, but compared to eternity, your life is so much shorter. A million dollars seems like quite a prize, but it's nothing compared to the eternal glory of heaven. And if you'd be willing to be uncomfortable for two hours for a million dollars, listen to this, would you be willing to be uncomfortable in this short little life for that which lasts forever? And so he says, run the, lot, run the race and stay in shape. Look at the last verse there, or second to last verse, verse 26. So I do not run aimlessly. It's kind of the picture of someone running a race and they go off the track and they just run around like, I'm not aimless. I don't waste my energy and my time. I do not box as one beating the air. It's a, you know, think of a boxer who's boxing. He doesn't just punch the air. It's wasting his energy and his opportunities in the same way, we don't waste our, waste our time. Verse 27, but I discipline my body. Literally, I bruise my body. I keep it under control. I say no to my flesh, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So here Paul is saying, we're to run the race with self-discipline. What an example of an athlete. An athlete disciplines his diet, his time, every aspect of his life for the sake of that which lasts. And as a Christian, he says in verse 27, I discipline my body, and so too are we. God has a course for us to run, and a question for us is, are you in the race? If you're without Christ in here, like you're, you're running aimlessly. You have no purpose in life, and someday you will be separated from God forever. But God's invitation is to believe in the gospel. Christian, are you striving each day to serve Christ? I mean, what's your focus? Are you motivated on glory, on heaven, or are you concerned about the things of this world? Maybe you're faltering, you're struggling, you're undisciplined, you're not saying no to your desires. Christian, we need to lay aside those weights that distract us, that hold us down, and we need to follow Christ. Let's pray.